This special monthly UBU episode on hashtag Black Mental Health is sponsored by Janta Neuroscience and supported by the Painted Brain, a California peer-run organization. Hey, Dr. Bonds, how are you doing today? Hello, Karis. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing really, really well, and I'm so happy to have you uh, back, especially on this special series, Hashtag Black Mental Health, because what are we going to talk about? Ah, Black Mental Health. And I do call you Dr. Bonds. Why? Oh, because you're a psychiatrist. That is true, but feel free to call me Curly. That's my given name. And believe me, in the places I've worked, sometimes I've been called worse things. So (laughs) Curly's fine. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So I I do want to start off as as people know, I don't do introductions and read bios and all that fun stuff. So why don't you tell us a little bit about like, who are you? Who are you? Okay. Well, I'm a psychiatrist by training. And right now I'm working as an administrator in a large mental health organization. We have probably about 200 psychiatrists that I supervise and oversee. But I think in addition to being a person of color, and also a Southerner by birth. I think about myself as having an academic core because I spent my first 10 years of career at UCLA working um, with teaching residents and medical students. And then I moved over to Charles Drew to focus more on the community of, of my origin, which is the Black community. I don't know how people are, how many people are familiar with Charles Drew, but it's the only historically Black medical college that's west of the Mississippi. And it has that as its foundational core. But now, of course, it reaches out to the Latinx community as well as others. But primarily, I've been a manager of doctors and I've been in a position to help shape mental health policy to some degree and look at service delivery and access to care and making sure that there's equity. That's always been a really important thing to me. In fact, that's why I migrated from UCLA over to Charles Drew, because that was a a real passion of mine. Wow. I think a lot of times we know we say things like, or we use terms, well, psychiatrists, and not to say anything about their profession, but some people will be like, oh, yeah, not going there. Don't want it. Mm-mm, no, thank you. <laughs> uh, yep. you're, you're kind of shaking your head. Yeah. So, exactly what is a psychiatrist? Like, what exactly is your, I think we kind of know what you do. I know what you do because I've seen a psychiatrist, but Can you talk a little bit about that to sort of demystify it and get people behind the green curtain? Well, I'll point out and come out too that I've seen a psychiatrist too. Uh, So I have both lived experience like you. Certainly during my residency, there was a training psychotherapy program and I worked with the senior psychiatrist who is an analyst. So psychiatrists are medical doctors. And I think that's the most important thing for listeners to realize is that we're taught to understand the whole breadth of human experience. We know how the different organ systems work. We know how diseases operate. We know about the intersections between the biopsychosocial model of, you know, the different pockets. There's biology, which is what you're born with, what your genes have. And there's also illness like cancer or HIV or anemia that can influence your mental health well-being. There's also the psychological component, which is what happened in terms of your development, how your brain developed early influences, relationships, bonding. And then there's also the social aspects that look at, you know, what institutions you interact with, be it school or educational 
experiences or even like the legal injustice systems. So psychiatrists take all of this into account when we're making our formulation of what's going on with the person. We don't just look reductionistically at, hey, these molecules in your brain do this and these nerve cells do that, but we look at the whole person in that context. I would say that psychiatrists in the mental health world sometimes are thought of as being the most trained because we spend a lot of time in school after college, four years, you go to medical school for four years, and then you do a four-year residency, which includes an internship that takes you through the gamut. I mean, I spent a lot of time doing internal medicine, and certainly as a medical student, hey, I delivered babies. I worked with people that were in the ICU. So I have that whole breadth of experience that not every mental health provider does. I would say that other specialists don't focus as much on medical aspects and physical illness as psychiatrists do. How is it that you decided to become a psychiatrist? Uh, Like I said, I'm a Southern, I'm from Alabama, and I'm proud of it. I had a sibling in my household who, during her first year of college, developed what was eventually diagnosed as bipolar disorder. And she had a serious manic episode. And I had a front row seat to that. I was a sophomore in high school, and she was a freshman in college. And interestingly, she was pre-med at the time. And just kind of was burning the candle at both ends, not sleeping enough. And that led to her having an episode that led to hospitalization. And I would say that seeing that and seeing how medications and therapy essentially saved her life helped me to understand that, hey, this is real. You know, this isn't a specialty that's esoteric. A lot of people don't understand what psychiatrists do. And that includes sometimes physicians, because in medical school, it's often in a separate building. There are separate clinics. It's not like every other specialty like cardiology, oncology, where it's all kind of under one roof. Psychiatry is often cordoned out and the funding streams are very different too. But for me growing up in that household, which had good resources, I saw that it was still hard for her to get care that was appropriate and that was culturally sensitive. And I think uh, we had, we had, like I said, we weren't wealthy, but we had good resources, but there was this huge element of fear and shame. And I came to realize that, hey, not a lot of Black people are doing this. The people that I saw in training mostly didn't look like me, but I got hugely encouraged to think about it as a specialty, to think about it as a career. And ultimately, when I started doing all those other rotations, I realized, hey, I'm not that fond of looking at, you know, the wound instead of the person. I don't want to put people to sleep. And psychiatry just kind of rose to the top of the list. And it also was just a core aptitude for me. You know, in college, I had been a resident advisor and a sophomore advisor. I was just kind of a natural magnet for people to come to with their problems. And I I think a little bit of it is my temperament. You know, I tend to be very even keeled. People tell me that I'm a very calm person and that they feel comfortable talking to me and disclosing things. And so I thought, why not go to my strength, which was relating with people and doing something that I felt like I could dive a little deeper than you can in the 15-minute discussion about what we're going to do about your blood pressure. And psychiatry offered that, especially the psychotherapy component where you could sit down with someone for close to an hour and really delve deep into their their unconscious and, you know, their, their personality and their motivations. 
Yeah. Use the term collaborative care and kind of there are different people who are supporting that person. I'm also thinking, you know, for the Black community in particular, you know, there's something, there's a saying we have, and I've heard other cultural communities have this too, which is like, eh, no, we don't air our dirty laundry, which basically means, and I'm just, and again, having a mental illness is not having dirty laundry. Let's just be clear. But really what it is expressing is we don't want everybody knowing our business. We don't want everybody in our business. But in this kind of collaborative care or team-based care model, there are going to be a number of people who are going to know your business, right, in order to help you. And so how do we understand that and how do we actually take advantage of having a team um, supporting us with our mental health? Well, let's look at it from the standpoint of other medical specialties. Let's just say that you go in to have surgery. You're going to have your gallbladder taken out. Well, the person who probably discovered that problem was your gastroenterologist and internist who doesn't do surgery. He's going to refer you to a general surgeon or a GI surgeon, a gastroenterological surgeon. While you're on the table, there's going to be a nurse who's making sure that everything's prepped and that everybody's washing their hands. You're going to have an anesthesiologist who's going to make sure that you don't feel pain and that you're unconscious. You're likely going to have, um, of course, the surgeon who's going to do the operation. That's collaborative care. You know, nobody, I don't think, would want to have their gallbladder just taken out in a surgical suite with just one person. And Mm. so it takes a team sometimes to get the best results. And also every member of that team has their own specialized function. Like for us, I always think about, well, I know a little bit about, say, transportation and housing, but I'm not an expert. I'm not going to go with you to the housing place to talk about whether you need this much space or whether or not you have benefits that qualify you for this particular facility. So there is a team member who can do that. I'd like to think that when I was in residency, I didn't have the luxury of team-based care because UCLA at the time kind of expected us to learn everything. So you were kind of a one-person show. And now that I'm in an environment where we have the luxury of like a recreational therapist, maybe, or an occupational therapist and social workers, it's like you can focus really on on your particular role in that person's care. Wow. Okay. And then um, I was also thinking about what are some ways that we can, you know, think about the importance of mental health as part of our physical health, you know, or just as important as our physical health? What sort of things should we be talking about and encouraging people to think about relative to hashtag Black mental health? What immediately comes to Uh, top of mind is that there's this kind of mind-brain dichotomy when essentially the brain is the organ and the mind is the mind or thinking is the function. And in the same way that your kidneys can have troubles, your lungs can have trouble, your heart can have trouble, your brain can have problems. And when your brain has trouble, that leads to mental illness. We don't always understand what the biological underpinnings of the problem is, but we do know that, say, if you have a head injury, you're going to probably have some memory problems. You might have times when you can't speak clearly, and all of those things are very, very much understood, but I think when it comes to stigma, we often have to put it into the model of this is something that's happening, maybe it's at the cellular level because of what we think of as neurotransmitters and other chemicals that cause us to think clearly. Uh, But a lot of this is just getting people educated because I think stigma often is closely aligned with shame and also pride. 
you mentioned not airing dirty laundry. I certainly remember that, you know, nobody wanted anybody to talk about it, but it's only proud of the fact that, hey, I went through this, people like you who talk about, I, I've, I'm in recovery, I'm doing better, I'm able to address my symptoms, I'm not incapacitated, I don't have to live a life, you know, where I'm locked away somewhere, because that's, I think, the public perception is that when someone is ill enough to see a psychiatrist, that they're going to have to not have a full life. And that's totally not true. I often tell people that if I'm successful, you'll need to see me less often. And I would put myself out of business because my goal isn't to make you dependent on me or my medications that I'm prescribing or our medications that we're working around together to prescribe for you, but it's to make sure that you're independent, that you're able to do all the things that you want to do. And once you start doing those things, it's important to occasionally open up and talk about the fact that, hey, I had depression, or I was suicidal at this one point, or maybe the fact that I still have points when I think people are following me or hear voices, because usually people don't talk about it because they're afraid. I think about some of the folks that I work with or have over the years as clients, they might be working as a teacher or as a coach or in a church. And they're afraid that if people find out that I have this, they're not going to want me to be around them or their kids. And so they just keep it all hidden. And so it's like this invisible epidemic. One in five Americans has a mental health problem, but they're not out, I would say, with the exception of maybe groups that do this like NAMI, they're not marching, they're not walking, they're not talking about it, they're not wearing t-shirts. Um, we're beginning to have the conversation more. I think the current pandemic has made people more aware of the fact that, hey, you can physically recover, but there's a lot of mental health aspects to fear and anxiety that we need to address. Yeah, I, I you know, that's one of the reasons why I am open. Um, and I even talked to my family before I was out, out, if you will, about uh, having a mental health diagnosis. Um, I realized that I couldn't find people who look like me who were talking about living with the same diagnosis as myself. And I didn't really believe that recovery was possible. I, I didn't know, was it possible? Because nobody was talking about it who looked like me. I thought, well, maybe it's possible for those folks over there, but I don't know if it's possible for Black people because we're just not talking about it. Um, or I didn't know the people who were talking about it. And I thought, okay, well, I can't put it on other people. Maybe I need to talk about it. Maybe that also would encourage other people. So I did find a community of folks who were actually, you know, Black folks talking about living with mental health conditions and their uh, recovery journey, and also uh, family members talking about what their needs were and um, their ability to support their loved ones, because families weren't talking to other families either. We know that evidence says that, you know, um, one of the best ways to reduce stigma is to have those positive interactions with uh, people who are living with mental health conditions. So that's one way to do it too. Um, I was going to ask you some other things around, um, you know, when we're thinking about, especially, I think the pandemic is such an interesting time. You know, this is a time when we're all collectively as a nation and as the world sort of going through it. And, you know, it is a, affecting our emotional well-being. It's like a, a global, I don't, this, this sounds maybe not the right term, but it's a trauma response, right? To kind of things that are happening. And especially in the Black community where we've seen disparities relative to COVID and people, you know, contracting COVID, people dying from COVID, the number of Black folks who are, I would say, essential workers um, and disproportionately so to other, other folks. So what are some things that we should be thinking about to be mindful of the protective things to protect our mental health and then the things that we need to do when our mental health is, let's just say, not going so well? 
Those are great questions. I would say that in terms of protectiveness, we would do the same thing for this that we do to address other trauma responses. You know, you have to take some time to pause and reflect, but try not to get stuck. If you think only about the negatives, about the limitations, about the restrictions, or about the losses, because God knows, I mean, I think everybody at this point knows someone either who's passed away as a result of uh, the coronavirus, where they've known someone who's been ill, if they themselves haven't been infected and had their lives impacted or their livelihoods, there's just so much loss. I mean, I can drive by now and mourn the loss of not only friends, but also favorite restaurants that didn't make it through. So I think we have to kind of pause and, and reflect and memorialize those things. I know that for me, meditation plays a huge role. And it took me a long time to get on board. Honestly, there were years when I told people that they should try to do mindfulness and meditation practice, but I, I didn't really you know, absorb that myself and apply it to myself. But I started doing it on a regular basis. And so now, even if it's just two minutes a day, I push the pause button. And that could, for some people, take the form of prayer. I mean, that's something that's huge in our community. People that have faith find that it's helpful to believe in something bigger than yourself or to reflect beyond yourself. Having a gratitude practice. I know that I have to stop periodically and realize that I'm so grateful that I still have a job, that I still have a home, that I still have people who care about me. It could be really, really small, or it could be something really huge that you're grateful for. And then I think that practice of gratitude helps one's mental health. The other thing is to do the things that normalize your life to the extent that you can. Like I, I like to exercise. I'm kind of a gym person, but I realize that now sometimes, you know, I don't like to go sweating in my mask. So I might go outside, go for a walk or go for a bike ride, walk my dog for a slightly longer walk. And I also think to myself, I need to be eating healthy and trying to take control over the things that I can and the things that I can't do, like going out to large venues or concerts at this point, I think that's a little bit too dangerous for me. Maybe when we get through the current surge, that'll be different, uh, but we're in one right now. So I think you just have to kind of focus on what levels you, and then your core values, I think are also important to think about. I've heard from one friend who's planning to retire that the waiting list for getting an appointment to talk with the retirement part of our HR division is like weeks long because so many people are reevaluating. Do I want to really keep doing this for the rest of my life? Looking at relationships and how you might want to make changes. This is an opportunity to say, you know, I'm not going to be here forever. That's a guarantee, but I can control what I do while I am here. And to take that kind of agency over your own life and your decisions is really important. Wow. Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> I know I've uh, you know, been trying to take that inventory myself. And I don't do very well with mindfulness and, and meditation. Um, an empty brain for me is a brain that can wreak havoc on itself. <laughs> so it doesn't mm -hmm. quite work for me in the same way. So I bought a um pedaler machine, like a bicycle, but not a stationary bicycle, but it goes under my desk and it pedals under my desk. As so I bought one of those, which I would, that would not be something I would generally want really. Um, but I thought, you know, maybe this is a way that, you know, um, I can do some self-care in the confines of my own home. What other things would you like to share about sort of your role as a psychiatrist and helping people think about uh, their mental health and well-being, and especially doing some things, you know, one thing we want to pay attention to is a lot of times we talk about crisis and, you know, this is a time when people are doing a lot of work around crisis reform or mental health emergency reform. I'll use that term so that it's sort of more conceptualized. Um, 
And I like to think about, well, what can we do to reduce the fact, the reduce a mental health emergency happening in the first place? What are some things that people can kind of do? We talked about some of that around visualization and meditation and um, centering oneself, pausing and reflecting. But let's say that things kind of don't improve for somebody. Maybe what is the next thing that they might want to try? Well, I think there are a couple of things that come to mind. One that I've been working on with some of my staff recently are helping people to create what we call advanced directives for psychiatric care. So that when you are in an episode, sometimes it's hard to express exactly what I would want done. You know, do I want you to leave me alone quietly? Or do you do I want to listen to music? Do I want to be able to watch a movie? Do I want to be able to eat? pasta, you know, what are the things that help me stay well? And to create that, not so much because you're telling other people what to do, but to tell yourself, like, hey, when I'm in a good space, the things that help me feel better are X, Y, and Z. And if I'm in a space where I can't communicate that so clearly to explain, this is my medication regimen, these are the things that I've had to adjust in the past. If you can have that someplace where if you do get into a crisis, you can just hand it off to the care providers and they can read it. I think that's one thing to kind of do some advanced planning, be it written, or even just have it sort of in your mind. I think you probably have heard of the Wellness Recovery Action Plan, the RAP plan, where you think about what are all the different components of wellness for me and how can I intentionally engage in some of those things throughout the entire year? So that on a regular basis, if I know that, hey, what lights my fire is to travel, even if it's just going across town to see a different part of the city, maybe I need to plan a little bit of getting out of my house to the extent that it's safe. I think also it's about just being in touch with other people because a lot of times, unfortunately, those who have serious illness isolate. Part of that stigma and shame, part of it's fear, but to be able to figure out who are my trusted brokers in my life that I can share what's going on with me. And even if they're not necessarily family members, but close friends or people that I've met through my recovery journey, who I can share with to just say, I'm having a really bad time. I just need you to come here and be with me. You know, maybe we're just going to watch a movie. We're not going to talk, but to have somebody around me, because I think when you're with other people, a burden shared is a burden lightened. And I, I always encourage folks. And that's why some of the people right now that I've been Zooming with, to the extent that it's safe and we're vaccinated, I say, I want you to come into the office. It's been six months or it's been a year now. And I, I worry that you're not getting out and that you're not having any human contact. And so that's something that I think of as very important, that that connection to other people. Oh, yeah. And I love the idea of um, we have talked about this before on this podcast and you know, with other guests as well as sort of the advanced planning, the rap planning. Um, and if some people don't have access to wellness recovery action planning um, groups or to the to the books, some of the simple steps are the ones that you've just named or, you know, what are the things that are important to you? What is your regimen? What is it that you need? Um, who is it that you need to communicate that to so that when you're not able to communicate it, it's, you know, maybe just something written on a piece of paper that you can give to someone or something that's tucked away in your wallet or on your phone that makes it available to that trusted person um, in your life that even if you can't give it to someone, maybe somebody else could do that on your behalf. So that's sort of the somewhat easy way to do it, the easiest way to do it. But, uh, uh, you know, we're again, you know, trying to make sure people can get access to some of these fantastic um, resources um, online and elsewhere. So you brought up the notion that there are 
few psychiatrists of color. And again, I think the statistics bear out it's less than 4% who are African-American. Closer to 2%, sadly. It gets worse by the minute. What's going on? Last year was 4%. Now it's 2%. Oh my goodness. Well, it's it's variable between psychiatry, psychology, and other mental health specialties. It, it varies between two to four percent. But the number that I've always heard is about two percent of trained psychiatrists are African American. I don't know how well we count that because we know that people don't fit into neat little boxes anymore. I mean, a lot of intersectionality and and biracial folks. Who knows how they put themselves out there on on questionnaires? But psychiatrists are rare in general in terms of well, not rare, but they're short, in shortage. We probably have about 6,000 psychiatrists fewer in this country than we should. And keep in mind, the landscape is that we have about 30,000 psychiatrists plus a few throughout the entire country. The other thing is that we're aging. I have to say now I'm in that category of over 60% or over the age of 55. And so as we're moving through the pandemic and more people are deciding to retire, some of them early, we're having shortages. And African-Americans, I think because of the fact that it is a long pathway, it takes resources and it takes not just motivation, but money. I always tell people no money, no mission, and you know, no money, no education to some degree. And we just, as a as a race, don't have the same institutional wealth or generational wealth that's been built up over decades and money handed to us. And so when someone commits to going to college and then medical school and then residency, you're coming out with on average about $250,000 in debt or more. And if you think about it, that's like in a lot of communities, that's a house. You, know? <laughs> you, just made me, you heard me like have a momentarily like a uh, gag there. That's a lot of money. Yeah. But there's, there are things that we can do intentional things. One, not everybody has to go to medical school. You know, there are other professions. Um, one that I know you and I have talked about are clinical pharmacists who can prescribe. There are nurse practitioners. There are medication, med- medical assistants. They're all a part of the mental health spectrum. And you don't necessarily have to commit to the full training because you can still play a role. I would love to see, uh, you know, a more clinical pharmacists of color. I would love to see more um, nurse practitioners of color. But we we have to think about if we're going to give people a leg up, it has to start early in that pipeline. It has to start with them seeing folks in elementary school and high school who do this work and talking about it, and then decreasing some of the institutional barriers. I think about the standardized test. And I will confess, I am a horrible test taker. Even though I used to write standardized exams, I would always struggle with them. And I finally figured out some of the tricks that you can learn, but they weren't things that I innately knew or grew up with. And so I think a lot of schools that are now looking at a holistic evaluation process to determine who comes in, what types of things have you done, what communities have you worked in as a volunteer, rather than just looking at a number or a GPA, because if you didn't go to the best schools and the best neighborhoods, you're not going to have the same types of aptitudes and abilities to show up on, say, an MCAT or an SAT or ACT test. So I know that with the pandemic, that's been one of the silver linings that a lot of schools have abandoned standardized tests as their litmus for entry because they haven't been able to get them. And truth be told, they only predict like how you will do in the first year of school. So to be able to eliminate some of those barriers and accept like maybe we're going to take the top 10% of high school students into our college, regardless of where they come from, assuming that not everything is created equal even in today's day and age. Okay. <laughs> I'm just like, so, you know, my, my previous, in my previous life, or maybe you don't know my previous life was in higher education. Um, and the work that I did in higher education was admissions. And um, it was at, 
you know, predominantly, I would say, Ivy League type institutions for the most part. And the the hardest thing I had to, and I, I was not the minority recruiter. So a lot of people, oh yeah, you were the minority recruiter. No, 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 I wasn't the minority recruiter. However, I really had to help people understand how do you help people gain entry? And the things that are barriers that you just named are things that are not predictive of whether a person will get out of the college that you just let them into. They're not predictive of that and helping them understand that. So I think, you know, you really hit some, you know, really, really important points. I love the idea of, um, you know, introducing the idea of psychiatry or the mental health profession early into students, especially students of of color and, and, and Black folks, and being able to, you know, help them think about how do you get there. That's really, um, you know, imp- powerful stuff. I, I can't keep remembering the time that was it bring your parent to work day or bring your profession professional person to, to work day. You know, it'd be kind of cool if we can get all the black psychiatrists to show up at bring your parent to work day, even if they're not a parent to somebody's school and talk mm-hmm. about the work that they do. Yeah, and there are other programs where, for example, I know that the Black Psychiatrists of America, which is a small but mighty group, they sponsor scholarships for medical students to be able to attend their conferences that are often in choice places out of the country as a part of the diaspora. But then I think, you know, there's the admissions piece, but then there's once people get in and they get out supporting them, like having programs that pay back student loans. You know, there's the extreme examples like Robert Smith, Smith, the billionaire who paid off all the debt for everybody who was graduating of um, Morehouse Mm -hmm. one year. And then there's other people who sort of do loan forgiveness programs, I think, to make it so that, hey, if you choose this specialty, because psychiatrists not the highest paid, it's gotten better, but it's not, say, the same as you would get if you go out and become a plastic surgeon or an ophthalmologist. So giving people a leg up in terms of if you do this, we're going to give you some help. And if you do it in an underserved community, that help will be amplified. I think that we need to campaign and advocate for all of those types of loan forgiveness programs, not only to specify that, hey, if you're a person of color, this is going to be available to you. And that's what tends to happen. I mean, at Drew, we see that people who graduate as Charles Drew graduates tend to go work in underserved communities that are usually populated by people who look like them. Wow. Yeah. How does somebody prepare to go visit a psychiatrist? If you're visiting a psychiatrist who is not, you know, culturally aligned or, you know, looks like you, that could be, you know, race and gender. What kind of things do you need to think about to prepare um, in order to develop the best relationship you can, if that is the only psychiatrist who's available, which, which can happen? Well, you know, the one thing I want to hesitate about doing is putting the burden on the person who's receiving care. Mm -hmm. I feel like as a mental health professional, it is my job. In fact, it is my duty to understand the cultural matrix that the person's coming from, even if they're different than me. And honestly, the majority of folks that I've treated in my lifetime have come from a different cultural background. And I've had to understand, you know, European cultures, Asian cultures, Latin cultures, to the extent that it's not a match for you you might have to point that out, but not so much that I have to educate you, but to say, you know, in my culture, we don't do X, Y, or Z. And this is why that won't work for me. Like if um, a psychiatrist suggests that someone go to a program that doesn't embrace their religiosity, and that's an important core thing to you, you might need to let them know, I need to have something that's a referral that makes more sense. Um, I would also say that you don't have to necessarily 
totally have a, a symmetrical reflection of yourself and the other person. And sometimes those differences can be incredibly powerful. Like a lot of my preconceived notions when I was in predominantly white environments was that, you know, I had this whole like stereotype threat, um, imposter syndrome thing going on. And my psychiatrist, who was also a psychoanalyst, who I think by the time I stopped seeing him was like in his late 70s, he would kind of confront me about, you know, is this you talking or is this you as a black person feeling discriminated against talking and sometimes those types of conversations would level me to say you know is this my projection or is it real sometimes it was real you know because discrimination and racism as we well know are really out there but sometimes he would see me limiting myself because i thought oh that's not something that i can do because i don't come from that background i don't have that type of pedigree and he would just say well why can't you mm -hmm. and so sometimes it was just that opening up the possibilities with someone who didn't look like me that I thought was very helpful. Is there anything else or any last sort of, uh, you know, words of wisdom, wisdom dropping, as I call it, that sounds really weird, but yeah, <laughs> that you would like to, to share. I want to make sure that, um, you know, if there's any, anything that I didn't touch on that you want to share that we get that in. Well, there are kind of two words of wisdom that I've been living by. One is that every day is a new day. It's a blank page. You know, what you write on it is up to you. Um, if you want to keep all the past history, just put that in a folder separate. Don't let it cloudy what you're doing today because you have an opportunity to recreate the script. And the other thing is a famous quote from someone who I believe influenced um, many African-Americans by his achievements, and that's Arthur Ashe. Start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. You know, we all start at this place this life in different places, different resources, different experiences, different aptitudes. But if you're just maximizing what you're given as your core gifts, and if you have the mindset that you want to share those and expound upon them, then I think that puts you in a great place. And hopefully the listeners, if they've stayed through this long, will realize that I don't think I have all the answers. I'm a constant student, and I really enjoy learning and listening to you because Every time it's a treat. And I really, really want to thank you for inviting me again uh, to the ears of your listeners. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Curly Bonds, for being with us on um, hashtag Black Mental Health of UBU. And I just want to encourage our listeners to make sure to join in next month for another special episode. So thanks so much. Thank you.